In Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal, and this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And today, I'm speaking with Nicolas Ricom. He is the owner of Chateau de Valcom in Costia de Nîmes. Nicolas, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me on board. Very happy to be to be there with you and to have a chance to talk about our vineyard and our region. Yeah, I'm very excited too. I, I love doing these podcasts because it's this great opportunity for me and, and hopefully for our listeners as well to sort of travel, um, you know, just in this half hour or so conversation. Always makes me wish I was you know, on the plane on my way to France or wherever I might be going. But uh, the podcast is a good, good fallback plan. So again, appreciate you taking the time. And can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you get into the wine industry? Well, there's a French comics way. Uh, called Asterix and Obelix, where Obelix was uh, basically dropped into a, a potion when he was uh, liquid, when he was young, and then he's, he was strong the whole life, his whole life. So basically, my um, story is I'm the son of a winemaker that was my dad, that himself was son of my grandfather that was the previous owner of the property. And this uh, estate, Chateau de Valcombe, has been in a family since 1740. So I'm just one of the, you know... Um, one of the part of a long chain and I'm, uh, my brother and I myself we're now the 10th generation that have they took over this uh, estate in the southern road but it's nothing original it's very um, traditional to French true to French wine culture long family heritage yeah when you're growing up in that environment do you just know all along that you're gonna take over the family business or did you did you want to do something else and then decide yeah, oh, you know what yeah. this wine thing actually seems like a good idea it is a very good question because we two brothers, Basile and myself, and we both had very different um, backgrounds. He knew he wanted to be a farmer. So uh, after schooling, uh, traditional schooling, when he was 18, he went to do a, a technical study on, on trees and vines and vineyard and vinification. And immediately after, he came back to the estate to work with my dad. On my side, I wanted to do everything but to be a wine grower. I just uh, <laughs> wanted to travel the world. And, you know, so I went to a, a very traditional engineer school. And then when I was 23, I went to the Middle East, to Saudi Arabia, to Dubai. I've been traveling for eight years. Ended up in South Africa making wine. And then I thought, okay, well, if you make wine in South Africa, you might as well make one for your own family. And so, um, yeah, that's like... I think probably the heritage that we have on our shoulders at one stage, it just comes back and hits you and you and you feel it. And you even though you want to do something else, there's something heavier than, than my mind that tells me, you know what, it's time to come home. So, um, yeah. So, but uh, my first fo- focus was to focus on a different job. And then when I was 30, uh, I decided to come here, to come home. Gotcha. And for those who are unfamiliar with uh, Costa de Nîmes, where is home? What, where where are we in France? And what is the kind of the growing region like? Okay, so um, you know France for for wine region is quite vast, but uh, most of the people know about Bordeaux, that is on the west coast, in the center part of France, but on the west coast, on the Atlantic side. Then they would also know Burgundy would be uh, at the top of the Rhone Valley uh, in the center west part of France, center east, sorry. And we are down below. Uh, if you follow the Rhone River from the French Alps all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, then the Costier de Nîmes is that very funny wine region that is part of the Rhone Valley, but is right on the Mediterranean Sea. So um, that means with the, the soils that we have are very similar and are Rhone sauce, we can talk about it later on, but the climate is a very strong Mediterranean climate. So this is where we are, the south, the most southern part of France, right on the Mediterranean border. 
Very nice. So you mentioned this, and I and I want to kind of we might come back to this as you said, but I want to understand this from the get go. So soil structure, you know, I assume has a lot of those kind of riverstone deposits that we associate with, uh, especially the Southern Rhone. But when you talk about a Mediterranean influence climate wise, what are what are we talking about here? So soil wise, you're absolutely right, absolutely correct. We're talking about those pebbles, old Rhone and Durance, those two rivers the pebbles that we inherit from those rivers. Um, so the higher you are, the closer to the surface, the biggest the pebbles. And as you're going low and down, it will be softer and, and I mean, thinner, thinner to end up like mm-hmm. big sand after 18 to 20 meters deep. deep. But the, when I say Mediterranean influence, it means uh, basically in the summer months, so May, June, July, and August, during the ripening period, we are very close to the sea. So uh, the water in the seas remains quite cold uh, while the air is getting very warm. And that difference in temperature between the air and the, and the, cold, and the, and the coldness of the sea creates a depression. And that depression, it's a, um, we call that a pressure difference. And that pressure difference creates wind called sea breeze or sea wind, which is the same mechanism in many, many countries. So people that love to do kite surfing, for instance, they would go on the beach around 3, 4 p.m. in the afternoon and then use that beautiful sea breeze to do the kite surfing or windsurfing. And for us as winemakers, we, we have the chance to have these sea breeze coming onto our vineyards, I would say 80 to 20 kilometers inland on a normal day. And that breeze brings a lot of saltiness and what we call iod onto the, uh, the grapes and also brings humidity because it's sea wind, so it will be more, more humid than a then the north wind that comes from the northern part of France will be very dry. So that influence of the wind, of the sea wind during the ripening period makes me say that the Costiadonim vineyards have a very strong Mediterranean influence onto their grapes and on their wines. And is that sort of saltiness perceptible in the finished wine? The saltiness is very perceptible onto the mostly the, the white wines. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's got a direct impact on the skins. And as you know, we for white wines, we don't do skin contacts. We press the grapes and get the juice and start fermenting the juice only without the skins, which means the, the iod that has deposited onto the, onto the, you know, onto the grapes and that the, juices, mm-hmm. the, the flesh has absorbed is immediately released into the wine, I would say. For the red grapes, because with a much longer... Uh, we have a real skin contact and skin fermentation, juice and skins together for 8, 9, 10, 12 days, it depends. Then there are much more things that are being extracted from the, from the, the, the skins. The color, the fruits, uh, the tannins, of course, that we all know about. And also some of the taste that the environment has uh, deposited onto the skins. So that's why we feel it more onto the white ones than onto the red ones. And... Talking a little bit about grapes, when we're talking about the, the varieties that are typically grown and, and produced in Costa de Nîmes, are we talking about your sort of traditional Rhone varieties on the white and red side, or, or are there some specific, uh, you know, singular varieties that do particularly well there? What, what are we talking about? What do you grow? Hmm. Um, at Valcom on our uh, family estate, we grow mostly Syrah. Okay. Uh, my grandfather was the first winemaker in, in the Costa de Nîmes to plant Syrah in 1955. Uh, at the time, they were only um, very, I would say, more low-quality uh, vineyard. 
which uh, grapes will, will produce a lot of juice, big quantity of juice that would be blended with other juices from other parts of uh, Europe. Uh, and only in the late 60s, we started to focus on, on, on lower yields, better quality grapes, and proper proper wine, I would say. And my grandfather was one of those pioneers. So my dad kept on planted Syrah, and we now have about 60% of our red uh, black grape that are Syrah grapes. But um, we also have Grenache, which is typical from the Southern Rhone. Syrah and Grenache really are the key elements and the key uh, varietals of the, of the older Rhone Valley. Um, you can add Sanso. Uh, Sanso has got a, a slightly bigger size grapes and also thinner juices with less color. Uh, they're very nice in making it. We used to, to have it for rosé, but now we love the fruit and the, delicate, the delicacy of the Sanso. So more and more of the wine growers here also plant Sanso. Uh, so Grenache, Sanso, Syrah, and Mourvedre. Mourvedre is also a varietal that is... Uh, not widespread, but that is growing into the Costia de Nimaria. So those are the four red grapes that are the most important. Uh, you can also add Carignan and Marcelon. Those are two red grapes we can also grow in the Costia de Nimaria if we, if we want to be allowed to grow it. And then on the white side, what is what is the, the white wine typically made up of? Ah, the white side is beautiful because there's a, such a large um, uh, portfolio of a, a varietals that we can use. Uh, of course, a very traditional Rhone Valley varietals for white wines, which is Roussanne and Marsanne. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can add up Grenache Blanc, you can add Viognier. Um, we can use Vermentino, or that we call a Roll here in, in, in France, but Vermentino in uh, uh, Italy, or Sardinia or Corsica. So Grenache Blanc, Viognier, Roussanne, Marsanne, uh, Vermentino. Uh, so that we have a very large, uh, we also are allowed to use Bourboulinque. And so that gives us really a very rich panels of uh, white wine. And that's the beauty, I think, of our appellation. The white wine diversity is tremendous. And I know that you you and your brother farm organically. Is that difficult to do in Costa de Nîmes? Is it, is it relatively easy? What, is, what does organic viticulture look like there? When we uh, took over the estate, I came back to France in 2005. My brother was already here. And once we decided to live at Valcom on the farm and maybe have kids and stuff, we decided it would be maybe time to, to go organic, basically to stop uh, doing any um, chemicals um, spraying onto the vineyards. It was not a decision that was made to increase the quality of our grapes. It was mm -hmm. a decision that was made to enhance the quality of our life and the people that are surrounding us. Uh, on the estate. That was uh, the most important thing. Um, so we went organic also because, of course, sales-wise, we could feel there was a demand for uh, those wines. And finally, because technically, uh, it's not the hardest place to grow organic. What is the most difficult point in growing organic vineyards? Uh, first is all the weeds. Uh, if mm -hmm. it starts raining in the springtime, from March all the way to July, then you have a lot of weeds in your, in your uh, vineyards. What is the problem? The problem is weeds is competing with your with your vineyards. And so all the resources of the soil, you want to dedicate it and to focus on your vineyard, not to have weeds basically um, using the water that is available, using the nutrients and what's available in your, in your soil. So we, uh, when people do not work on organic way, they just spray and then kill all the weeds. When you grow organic, you have to do mechanically. So you have a tractor and then you just plough the ground the first 20, 20 centimeters, basically. And you pluff the ground and remove all those weeds. And because where we are, the rain at springtime is very little. 
we might have a bit of rain in April, a bit of rain in May, and almost nothing else. That means there is a very there is no much wheat growing, and so if you don't have many wheats, then it's much hard, easier to do organic farming as well. So technically, we're in a region where growing organic vineyard is not so difficult, and that is why in our appellation Costa de Nîmes today, about just more than 30% of the total uh, vineyards that are growing in the Costa de Nîmes are already certified and la uh, labelized as organic, So, which is probably the, one of the highest rates you would find in any uh, one appellation in France. And I know you mentioned that for, for you and your brother, the decision, at least initially, was mostly about quality of life and you know wanting to keep the land you were living on you know, yes. free of, of chemicals. Is your sense that that is true for most of the other growers that have made the decision in the region? And and are they mostly people like you and your brother, you know, family operations? What is what is the sort of breakdown of how is that mostly what, what the Kosciadonim is in terms of producers, smaller family concerns? I think the Kosciadonim has got a few very important key um, key assets. Uh, first of all, it's a region where um, to buy a hectare of vineyard of a, a very good, beautiful Syrah which costs you about 15,000 euros. Um, uh -huh. It's not very expensive if you look at the price of vineyard in the Seattle state in, or in California. It's probably three or four times the price, easily, easily. Yeah. So it's a, one region where young uh, youngsters and, and young winemakers can come buy grapes and buy vineyards and start, and, and start uh, growing the, the grapes. So first of all, lots of young winemakers are coming to Costa de Nîmes, and that is a very strong, I would say, um, uh, assets of our wine region. We have a lot of uh, family farms, but lots of the winemakers are young, 25, 30 years old guys coming back to their farm. In other regions of France, uh, Beaujolais, for instance, or Bordeaux, it's much harder. Lots of young, uh, 25, 30 years old kids decide to, to give up and do something else. But in Nîmes, because of the price of installation is not so high, the price of the vineyard, and also because we can grow organic vineyard quickly and also we're very free to we we're close to the sea there is a very strong demand for white wines and the white wines we produce here uh, we produce here are quite uh, are doing very well then we have more and more young winemakers i'm 47 but i'm already old 30 35 coming in and so it's a very strong asset um for appellation uh, the age of the winemakers in costia de Nîmes, we have 75 private estates which means estates like Chateau de Valcon, with, where you, you have your own uh, cellar and you make your own one with your own vineyards, private estates, about 75. And we have, say, 10 big uh, co-ops cooperatives that would basically bring the, the, the grapes from vine growers and then make a lot of wine from their grapes. And the split would be about, I would say, 60% of the production is in the hand of private wine estates and about 40% in those cooperative systems which makes a good balance and, and make a one affordable for all kind of clients. You can find a bottle for nine euros and you can find a bottle for 50 euros in the same appellation. That's quite interesting. Um, but yes, we, we are, we have a traditional historical part like Chateau de Valcon since 1740, but also we have young winemakers looking at fine, buying six, seven hectares of vineyard to start their own production, they can come to Costa de Nîmes because the price of land remains very affordable for young winemakers. And what does that influx of young winemakers do for for the region? Do you feel like it it brings in people who are it's huge looking to do 
newer tech, like different techniques or, or, or different styles of wine? Like how is the wine being made in Cozirinim different now than maybe it was 15 or 20 years ago? Well, uh, first of all, um, if I was the one that was traveling in South Africa before and making one day before coming back to France and to Nîmes and to Valcombe, but uh, many other young winemakers today have been to California, they have been to New Zealand, they have been to Australia, they have been to many uh, foreign countries where they've learned different techniques far different from what their dads or grandfathers were, were, were doing before. So first of all, technically, when you have been traveling for a few years before coming back to your own um, um, legacy or to your own land or to your home, homeland, um, you come back with new techniques and new ideas, technically. Um, second thing is you also come back with more confidence. That means you know that you, you've been traveling, you can export your wines, you can address your wines to not only to your neighbors, you can propose your wine to someone else in France, you can propose your wine to US clients, to Australian clients. That means you have good, good confidence because you know that uh, what you've been making, uh, you know, abroad was, you know, what you're going to make now in Nîmes is not as, as good as what you have been making. And you, you've got that confidence with you to propose and to offer your wines on new markets. Um, and finally, um, the, dyna- the dynamics creates dynamics. So um, in a dynamic region, people come and want to, to move in and to be part of it. In a, very, in a slow region where there's no dy- dynamism, then people don't think attracted. Um, so um, that's really something you can feel if you come to Costia de Nîmes. And I would say the average age for uh, winemakers would be in, in the late, late 40s, which is quite young for, for a wine region. So technically, the fact that people have been traveling brings on to a you know, different way to make wine, but also to address it to people. Like consumers, for instance, used to think Costia de Nîmes red wines would be, would be red wines that you have to sell for three to four or five years before you can actually uh, taste it. Um, they used to think that uh, we used to have very wooded wine and use a lot, lots of barrels in our aging. Um, today, the fruits that you get from the wines, the freshness that we can afford and we can propose, um, specifically using the Mediterranean climate that helps us getting lots of freshness, Those the, the, the structure of the wine is extremely... Um, um, large. There's a very broad scope of wines, of red wines being produced here. And I think the change in the style over the last 10 years has been much more powerful than it has been over the past 50 years, right where we are. That's really interesting. And that actually leads into the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which you sort of already started uh, touching on, which is sort of how these wines actually, you know, taste and <laughs> perform at the table and things like that, which is also very important to to me and to the people listening here. So it, let's start maybe with, uh, we'll start with the red wines and we can touch on on white and rosé. Sure. But I wanted to kind of get the sense of, you know, you mentioned that, that a lot of your production is Syrah. And yes. for our listeners who might be familiar with Syrah from, say, the Northern Rhone, or might be familiar with Syrah from Australia or America, how, how do you kind of and obviously general you don't have to be general here because i'm sure that within not only your own portfolio but certainly within the region as a whole there is a lot of variation but but generally speaking what if someone picks up a bottle of cosiadenim syrah or a syrah based wine what what are they going to get um since we, we um, our audience is extremely um they know a lot about wine i would i would get a few details there are i would say two styles of Syrah that you can okay. find in Costa Denim. 
uh, all the vineyards that would be located in the northern part of the Appalachian, they have less of the sea wind and more of the mistral, the north wind. So okay. the, the sun has got a stronger influence. So you're going to find ripe syrah, lots of red berries, strawberry, raspberries, cherry, and quite um, slightly jammy. That would be the northern part of Kostiadonim. The southern part, because of the strong sea influence, we, we, we don't have that, that red taste in, on the syrah. We have a black taste. It would okay. be a blackberry, it would be blackcurrant, it would be black olives, um, and um, that fresh carbon print on the finish. So I would say you really have two different kinds of sierras within the Costa de Lima Appellation. The northern part, more away from the beach, from the sea, would have a more red, traditional southern run style. Um, the southern part, closer to the sea, would have a much more Mediterranean, delicate style with more black fruits, less red fruits, more freshness, less jammy. So you have really you really have two styles that you can expect from the Syrah and the red grapes in Costa de Lima. And you mentioned that, contrary to maybe what some people might have assumed, oak aging and all that is not a, a huge part of production. Is is that about preserving the the delicacy, or is it like why why aren't new barrels a big part of the winemaking approach in the in the region? There are um, various elements to answer that question. Um, there is a very obvious element, which is consumption. As I was saying earlier, lots of uh, winemakers now are less than 40 or 50 and they, they've been traveling, so they know the consumers. And we they tend to realize that people drink wine today, red wine, a very different way than we used to drink wine 40 years, 20 years ago, which means we don't sell the wine as long as our parents used to. Um, we just want to grab a bottle, open it with our friends quickly. We don't always prepare a four-hour uh, lunch or dinner uh, with six courses when we drink wine, sometimes you only have a few, a bit of saucisson or whatever uh, aperitif on the table and up you want to open up a bottle and have it ready. But that means we need to produce wines that will be very, not easy to drink, but easily drinkable. That means drinkable immediately. Yeah. Um, if you have to sell your wine for four or five years, you need to have, of course, some of the wines producing I have to be selected for a few years. But we also need to produce wine that are very easily appreciable and drinkable by the by the people. Uh, so um, that's why when you use oak, proper oak, uh, for wine aging, you want to use oak because the tannins of the oak is going to melt with the tannins of the wood and to reduce the oxidation potential, which means to enhance the aging of the wine, the aging capacity of the wine. So there's no point, in my opinion, to have a wine that's going to be aged in barrel and drink within six months. The point, the whole point of barrels is to, um, to, to, to slow down the um, oxidation potential so that your, your wine can resist oxidation much longer and then it can age much longer. So I would say people use less wood in the Costa de because we also want some of our wines to be drinkable quickly with lots of freshness and fruit. Second thing, it's important, freshness. If you're close to the ocean or close to the sea, um, that sea brings freshness, you want to offer the freshness in your wine. And so sometimes the one that's been made and, and drink within just a year and a half after it was made can be beautiful. That cranberry, raspberry, black olive is there, it's just showing up quickly, nicely. Um, and so we don't need wood anymore uh, for one that's going to be drunk within two, two and a half, two, three years. That makes sense. Uh, finally, there's a uh, very interesting point. Um, I think my dad and 
my grandfather before him also loved wood because the the effect of new wood, uh, new oak onto the wine was to soften up the tannins. There is that that sweetness from the oak that was really nice if the tannins were a bit harsh or a bit uh, sour, slightly sour, or a bit too hard, too young basically, or too green. The, 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 the new wood would help to cover it up and to smooth it up. Today, good winemakers can work their tannins in the tank during fermentation. And we are capable of coming up with beautiful, subtle, uh, fine tannins right after fermentation. And suddenly, we don't need wood anymore to soften up the wine because it's already mm. soft. Uh, so then the, the, the use of wood can be only kept for aging potential uh, or to have that nice wooden taste that people also enjoy. But the softness of the tannins does not depend on wood anymore. We are capable technically of having soft tannins with direct fermentation in a, in a, in a cement tank. Very cool. And let's talk a little bit about enjoying these wines with some food because obviously, you know, here in the United States, as you might be aware, for some people, wine is is uh, it's not quite the way it is in, in France and in the rest of Europe, where it's something that people kind of on, often only will have with food. But it's still very important to our audience, to a lot of our listeners, to think about some possible pairings. So, you know, starting off with, with Syrah in particular, because, again, as you mentioned, that's a lot of what you make, and it's one of the most exciting varieties in the region. What's What are some of your favorite foods to have uh, with this wine? Okay, um, the Syrah, as I was um, saying earlier, uh, shows very nice uh, black taste, uh, black cherry, uh, black olives, black currant, um, and a bit of that ink and carbons uh, finish. I love to pair it with lamb chops that I'm just going to grill softly with a bit of uh, Provence herbs on top. Um, every um, the grill um, toastiness. Uh, of the meat of the of the lamb, which got a very strong taste, pairs beautifully with um, kind of a syrah that we are producing here. Uh, clearly, that's something that that matches uh, extremely well. Um, when we what we do also here, there's a course where we use um, it's also meat. It's beef meat usually that we stew. It's called toro, the bull meat basically, stewed with um, uh, carrots with a heavy gravy in a red wine sauce. Uh, and the and the beef that we use actually it's bull um, bull from our okay. region the the flesh got a very strong taste like game, and so that strong taste pairs beautifully with the nice black olives that the syrah that we have here the British here um, um, comes with. So um, I would say if you're also a big fan of hard crust cheeses, not the soft crust like Camembert or but the hard crust like like Emmental. Old Emmental, like like Salers, like Old Cantal, those cheeses have a very strong salt uh, um, taste, and they also do a beautiful match with those uh, uh, black style uh, Syrah. And what about the white and rosé wines? Like, what are they? You know, kind of more robust. Do they need you know sort of heartier foods, or are they sort of? As you mentioned obviously part of their popularity in in the broader uh, Mediterranean area mm. is their freshness. So, Absolutely. so what pairs well with them? Um, the very traditionally people think of uh, drinking um, cheese with red wines and then you know and meat with red wines and the white would be uh, aperitif. Or today, I think one of the there is a big large production of goat cheeses in the, in the southern France where we are in Les Cévennes and Nîmes. Mm-hmm. We have a nice we have nice goat farmers and they produce beautiful goat cheeses. There is no better way to enjoy a nice uh, soft crust cheese than a white wine with a bit of saltiness. That is just incredible. 
when you cheese are salty naturally. Sometimes with the affinage, the aging of the cheese, that saltiness is showing up even more. And when you can blend the saltiness of our white wines with the saltiness of those natural cheeses, the, the, the blending is amazing. So it just brings up flavors on both sides. So clearly, hard crust and soft crust cheeses uh, with white wines, okay, our white wines is beautiful. There's something we also do here. We, 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 um, we fish for sardines and, and red snapper. So just a few sardines, there's nothing easier than get a few sardines in your pan or on your grill um, with just a bit of uh, salt, nothing else, big salt uh, uh, on top of it. Those sardines, grilled sardines with our white wines, they also have that saltiness, of course, in the, in the taste of the flesh. Um, pairs beautifully um, and we as you go along with red snappers or more red flesh um, fishes then you're going, you're going to move to rosé you're going to move to okay. rosé because the rosé in costière can really show a very strong um, uh, how do you call that orange uh, mandarin almost lime finish so our rosé are not heavy they're not full of strawberry jam or full of like a sweet taste. They're very dry. We can do very, very dry rosés. And they pair beautifully both red flesh fishes, for instance. Very cool. And then just one last question for you, Nicolas. So uh, for people who are interested in finding these wines, are, are, first of all, are, are your wines available in the United States? Where might people look? And, and more broadly, kind of what should they keep an eye out for on a store shelf or wherever they might be looking on a, on a restaurant wine list, etc.? You know, the funny thing is, uh, I think the, the first time my, cl- my parents exported wine, it was in, into USA in 1993. Uh, they had a friend called Robert Katcher, Bobby Katcher, and he mm-hmm. was the first one to export Chateau de Valcom wines, basically. Uh, and um, our first export market was USA. So uh, the clients and the, the consumers in the in United States, they have been able to find our wine since 1993 now. Um, today, we our Biggest, largest region to find Chateau de Valcombe wines will be uh, New York and New Jersey. The company called Cognac One, a uh, very nice French guy, Xavier Fleury, that, ex- that imports the wine for all the restaurants in, uh, in, in New York and in New Jersey. Uh, we have a very strong retail uh, also um, a place with Planet Wines in, in California and Virginia, Florida. I'm not going to name all of them, but uh, basically on both coasts, on the one coast and, and um, the Pacific coast and Atlantic coast, that's where most of my wines are being in, in you know, sold. But um, honestly, U.S. clients, they don't maybe not realize, but USA is a, is a big, big market share for Costa de wines. The, 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 something great with the American consumers is opposite to French people that always believe they know everything about wines. Uh, the, the American consumers, when you go for tasting, are always open to discover. And they have no preconceived ideas about wine. They're just like so open for tasting. And for us, that come from a very small wine region that is very not known yet. It's amazing to go to USA to have a tasting and all people coming and say, okay, well, just let me know where is it made, how is it made. Uh, in France, people would tell you, no, I know, I know. My grandfather was making wine, so I think I know. In USA, never. It's a huge chance for our wines um, to, you know, to have a chance to, to share it with you guys because you're always open to discussion, open for discovery. And that to me is, a, you know, that's why... That's why USA is a big market share for Costa de Limon wines, export wines. Well, Nicolas, this has been really interesting. I 
really great opportunity to learn a little bit more about you and about your family's winery and also of course about the region as a whole and again really appreciate you taking the time to let our audience know a little bit more about this small but powerful region no thank you very much thanks so much for listening to the vine pair podcast the flagship podcast of the vine pair podcast network if you love listening to this show or even if you don't but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So, the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.